Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera. And I am Frank Capello. Rivka, how's it going today? Um, you were telling me just before we started recording that there's something happening astrologically. What, yeah. What's going on right now? Okay, so we are currently recording this on Friday, May 5th. And by the time you're listening to this, we should be in the clear. This should we we should have passed this, but we are in the currently clear. in <laughs> What's yes. happening? We are we are currently well, we are currently in a major Scorpio lunar eclipse. And this eclipse has had me fucked up leading up to and probably like but this is like the day day, but it really ends, you know, it's tomorrow it'll probably be like coming down. But if you're feeling um a little bit like things are major things have been sort of like ending chapters, major closes. You might be feeling like very grief, like a lot of grief because things are ending in some part of your life. It's not just you. This is Scorpio in the new moon. It's got me feeling all kinds of ways. Um, and if you're not feeling it, like, good for you. But um, if you are, just take care of your. I mean, I guess it'll be over by now. So this advice is moot. But something also that I think is really interesting this astrologist I follow, Chani, I think that's how you pronounce their name, C-H-A-N-I, um, says that Pluto, okay, Pluto is also in Aquarius right now, and there is a retrograde happening. But what you need to know about Pluto being in Aquarius is that the last time this happened, we had the Industrial Revolution. Oh, no. Sound familiar? Sounds similar to something that might be happening now. Oh, you mean that moment in time when like a whole new kind of uh, machine changed everything? Yeah. Okay. I'm talking AI. Okay. In case I mean, you didn't get it. You could be talking, yeah, AI or just uh, all the technological advancements that have transformed uh, the economy, the tech industry, all of the things that now have much more outsized control over our lives. Um, one question though do we need to take this Pluto thing seriously? Because since that time, Pluto is no longer a planet. I don't think it, I don't know that it means as a, I think, I don't know that it means like, I don't know what the literal meaning of it means because I am not an astrologer, even though I can sound, I got like a few sound bites and sound like when I am the type of, I take this stuff in, if it relates to anything I'm going through, I take it as gospel <laughs> and everything else is it's like, so I don't know. The point is that I was, I felt seen. It made a lot of sense. Gotcha. I have a lot of like big decisions to make and like endings coming. And I also was like, wow, if that's true, that's wild because the topic right now, you know, I know that I've been going on about it on here, um, but I'm not alone because everyone's been talking about it. And The Lever actually did some great reporting on it recently. So. Yeah, we, for uh, on Lever Time last week, we interviewed uh, Dr. Max Tegmark, who is one of the world's leading AI experts and the guy who runs that institution that wrote that open letter that was signed by like Elon Musk and uh, a bunch of other pe tech people who were like, hey, we need to stop the AI to experiments because it, it will, it can and will get out of control. That's aye, the thing aye, that aye. he explained in the interview, which was so fascinating, but also terrifying, which is like, you know, once they set up AI that can essentially do AI research on its own, then the, like the rate at which 
artificial intelligence grows and becomes more and more intelligent, it'll just go from like, you know, everything we've accomplished in the last 50 years will be accomplished in like, I don't know, a few days. You know, like it'll just, it'll develop so quickly that it can get out of hand too fast. So yeah, so it's a really, really good interview. Yeah, people check it out on the Lever Time podcast. But uh, we're not going to be too down on AI today. And I know it's could be terrifying, but we have some... We have some lighter fare to discuss. Um, Is it? Do we? <laughs> uh, we're gonna we're gonna apply our critical lens, but you know, on the surface, it is because a week ago the Met Gala took place, um, which is a yearly mm-hmm. event. Actually, I, in in knowing that we're gonna talk about this, I realized for the first time I was like, I have no fucking idea what the Met Gala is. <laughs> like, I know that it's like I know it's a fancy party that celebrities dress up for, but other than that, I have no idea. So, Rivka, what what is the Met Gala? Yes, you are correct, Frank. It is a very fancy party. The Met Gala is an annual fundraising event that benefits the Met's Costume Institute, which basically, I was like, also, what is a costume institute? Essentially, they just, you know, it's a museum for costume. Let's that put it sense. that way. Tickets for this event are 35 grand a ticket or 200 to 300 grand for a table. <laughs> And yeah, this is <laughs> this is for 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 cost for costumes. Anyways, um, so this is it's like a fashion Super Bowl, which is you know in the context of late stage capitalism, I think it's become a particularly epic moment of American disassociation and delusion, in which the uber wealthy wear uber wealthy garments and they get their pictures taken while the rest of the world burns down in flames. <laughs> so. This event is by invite only, and this guest list is selectively put together by Vogue and their queen, Anna Wintour. It's like famous for knowing that even a celebrity might get invited and they don't get a plus one. It's like all about exclusivity. That's the whole vibe. It's wealth. It's worship of the 1%. It's an opportunity for designers, brands, and, and the people who wear them to make other people adore them and want them, blah, 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 blah. And every year... There's a theme. And this year's theme and dress code was in honor of Carl. Carl being the late Carl Lagerfeld. And if you don't know Carl Lagerfeld, he was a German designer who was famous for being the creative director of Chanel and building a brand that was essentially all about luxury, particularly white, thin, blonde luxury aesthetics. He was also notoriously and dangerously fatphobic, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, misogynistic, racist, and homophobic. And he was a gay man, by the way. So there's just a ton of like really gross and offensive Carl moments that we could discuss. The list is very long and it's important to note, which we'll get into, that those uh, that part of him was not that was not part of the in honor of Carl. It was oh, they weren't much censored. they weren't like we're honoring the misogyny of this man. We're honoring <laughs> the countless lives of models that he destroyed. No, that's no. not that's not what this party was. No. About. So we'll let you in a little bit on some of the things that uh, that Carl has said. Yeah, there were a ton of really harmful and gross and offensive uh, things that Carl Lagerfeld has said and done that we could discuss. But we're the list is too long. So we're just going to we're just going to hit uh, just a few of them. Just so you have a little bit of context. Carl once openly shared that he was, quote, fed up with the Me Too movement and questioned the claims of victims who came forward during that time, saying, quote, what shocks me most in all of this are the starlets who have taken 20 years to remember what happened. Jesus Christ. I'm just reading this for the first time. That's fucking disgusting. Yeah. So rape apologist. Cool. Um, 
Yeah, he also claimed in a 2009 interview that no one wants to see plus size models. And then he called Adele a little too fat. And in reaction to Angela Merkel's decision to open German borders, where he's German, to Syrian refugees, he said, I know someone in Germany who took a young Syrian and after four days said the greatest thing Germany invented was the Holocaust. What? Oh, and he also opposed gay marriage. Again, he was gay. So now knowing all of that, like, why would the Met choose to honor this man in their theme? Like, there are so many other people you could choose from. There are so <laughs> unlimited themes. Uh, you could do, you know, Enchantment Under the Sea. You could do uh, We're in Space. You know, there are so many different things. Um, and it, I, apparently not a lot of the celebrities who showed up took too much umbrage with it. Um, although... Jamila Jamil, the actor uh, from The Good Place, did post on Instagram, uh, quote, Hollywood and fashion said the quiet part out loud when a lot of famous feminists chose to celebrate at the highest level a man who was so publicly cruel to women, to fat people, to immigrants, and to sexual assault survivors. She also added, this isn't about cancel culture. It's not even about Carl. It's about showing how selective cancel culture is within liberal politics in the most blatant way so far. Which is absolutely right. And look, Jamila Jamil, she's not always she's not always on, but this is this is pretty on. This is peak liberalism right here. Absolutely. It's like especially hearing those quotes back to back. And I think to your point about, of course, they could have chosen a different theme. I think, you know, I've heard people talk about this as like very hunger games that I think there is an intentionality in in taking a figure like this and saying, like, we are not going to let go. We're not going to renounce our our leaders of this white luxury aesthetic. <laughs> and we're going to show you in this liberal world that we can even get your most liberal people to attend under the guise of thinking that potentially, um, sure, come spend the $35,000, get sponsored. You can protest here. It's all art. But like, you know, and I think and we'll talk about the guest list of, of folks who did attend. And there there is a history of people going to things like the Met Gala and wearing protest garbs and doing make having an effort to sort of protest at the party. I think the big question becomes like, is that a is that a worthy tactic? I don't know. But at this moment, and I'm with Jamila, I'm like, no, a strike like we are in the era of striking like it doesn't matter you going. And, you know, some of the protests were like some celebrities wore pink because Carl notoriously hated pink. If they were in a body that Carl notoriously hated, that itself was a protest, which is true and valuable. But like, for example, last year or in 2021, when AOC notoriously went to the Met Gala and wore a dress that said tax the rich, she was seated at Anna Wintour's table. So what value does it really hold to have a statement like that and then go sit down at the table of the person who... Like, it actually gives them more power because it's just like saying you're going to strike and never yeah, strike. It's the performative anti-capitalism, which can give you the feeling of doing something without actually doing something. Yeah, I don't know. I, so you would not go to the Met Gala. Let, let's let's take the, the Karl Lagerfeld theme aside. Let's say it's a, a neutral theme. You have the opportunity to go to the mm -hmm. Met Gala. You don't have to pay for the ticket. Are you going to go? If so, what are you doing? I think it's a I think it's a bullshit question. Sure, because that context doesn't actually exist. So I guess the context, you're right. Without the Karl Lagerfeld of it all, the context is still uber wealth. 
you know, I haven't didn't dig into the I'm sure there's stuff there, you know, when you have a gathering around that and there have been. But if anything, it's just like it is that nature of like we're all gathering together. Potentially, it's a place where you have if you, you know, I guess without the Karl Lagerfeld, maybe you have a moment to like make a statement. But again, I feel like we're maybe this wasn't even the case 10 years ago, but where we are at this moment of late stage capitalism, when you have France and the protests in France where they're, the streets are on fire and you're going to come out in a 35 whatever million thousand dollar gown and say, like, this is my statement speaking to I was going to say MTV, like, oh, it's not it's not 2000, but wherever <laughs> you're extra or whatever. In in contrast with the, the protest movements in the rest of the world and what's happening, I think like there was maybe a moment in time where I'd be like, you can use a platform mm-hmm. to make a statement like that. But like if you're going to use that platform, then why don't you get together with like all your other friends, you know, who are thinking the same way and like come out there and like burn your dresses on. Do something fucking yeah, like really creative. go for it. It's not actually creative to like write something on your dress, to be very honest. Like if anyone does any kind of like has any kind of sense of like actual Mm -hmm. performance art like then be fucking creative and people are like wow it's also just like artistically you're like this is not like go to la mama (laughs) like (laughs) you know what i mean like get some culture i'm just like this is absurd so i guess my answer is no and then of course there's a little girl inside of you know it's the same the feeling of like it maybe just tying it back to the eclipse and things ending it's like having to mourn like the things that we were raised and internalized to be like, that is so amazing. But what do I really like? If you really want your picture taken and to dress up and look, you can dress up. Everyone has a right to dress up and look awesome and get their picture taken. And like, that's the positive of something like Instagram. Put it up. Like, if you want to dress up and be seen, you can do that without harming other people. So are you going, Frank? Oh, I'm totally going. Are you kidding? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I would, yes, I would go. But I would do kind of like what you're saying. I would, I, first I would find like the most subversive way to dress, which would probably just be like wearing like basketball shorts and a t-shirt. Like I would like pull a John Fetterman and be like, whatever, I don't give a shit. And then I would use every opportunity to just shit on the event. Just I like, I, I wouldn't be attending in earnest. I would be attending out of protest. And if anyone... If anyone risked putting a microphone in my face, I'd, I would. All my answers would just be like, "You're part of the problem. This is part of the problem. All of these people are part of the problem. Uh, but this do you is think a that's farce." Really going to be effective? Like, do you really think that would be effective? Like, because I think that I feel like that's what Pedro Pascal tried to do. I feel like Lizzo did that. I feel like you see it in bits and spurts, but like the did they? I didn't see what any of their their like talk. Yeah, on like carpet. like okay. Well, Pedro Pascal. Um, I didn't even hear what what they had to say, but he, well, he didn't speak to anyone. He just gave the middle finger and he wore shorts, which notoriously, like, there was just a lot of fashion fuck yous to Carla, which again, you would have to, like, know. I just don't think we're in a subtle phase with this shit. And, like, to be honest, you going and doing all that sounds like, I'm like, it sounds like someone being like, I'm going to go in and, like, fight the good fight in Congress, like... (laughs) But, like, we know that the machine is so much bigger. Like, that doesn't... You could go on your own and try and do that. And, like, I just don't think they'll censor you. Like, unless it's a unified movement, I don't think you're going to be successful in what you intend to do. I think it has... I think this is, like, a case of, like, this is... And we're seeing this, too, with, like, the... Even with the writer's strike. Like, we're just in a moment of time. It's the year of Aquarius. 
or in a moment where you're not to keep bringing in. I really, truly only understand astrology that like pertains to me. Um, but we're in a moment of and this collective like truth telling. And it is sort of this time where I just the individual effort, unless it like you have to stress, like, I just don't think you can participate and expect to be taken seriously. That's totally fair. That's a, a, a legitimate criticism. I wouldn't be entering into it thinking like, I'm about to save the world or like, I'm about to bring down capitalism all by myself. It would more so just be like, I'm going to ruin the Met Gala. That's my point tonight. <laughs> my point is to ruin the Met Gala. Um, I would like I would like liken it to uh, the the must stop oil activists who threw soup on the Monet painting like that. It's more so like what would you do? I don't know. Maybe I'd like smear shit all over myself and <laughs> like stink up the joint and bring a bunch of like working class people who have had their jobs shipped overseas in and I don't know, just make it as like untenable but they're not as letting you bring a guest. <laughs> Look, Rivka, this is a this is a fictional scenario. If we were serious about this, we could like we could game out all we could organize. All right. Okay. So this is my new answer is yes, I would attend, but we have to organize an actual coordinated with other effort celebrities. Of, who with are other celebrities, with other people, with other media outlets. We gotta organize and coordinate. Yeah, it. and I just think we have to be we have to be conscious and careful of how like easily we can be manipulated our best intentions can sometimes be manipulated to be a part of the problem but i think i could understand like you had all of these artists that i respect who are involved in some saying messages that are important i think they thought by going they could have a silent kind of protest but ultimately it sort of became silent because you're still bowing down to this altar that is ultimately saying it's okay if you make these misogynistic hateful, racist, anti-Semitic, fatphobic comments. Somewhat, it's free speech. You can say whatever you want, but they're ultimately going to come and they're ultimately going to pay a ridiculous fucking amount of money to be here. And your actions speak louder than your words. So you can go and protest, but you're there. So like, what kind of fucking protest is that? It's in, it's it's insane sure. to me. No, you're, you're right. And you know what? That's why I love doing this podcast with you and talking with you because... It's a dialectic. It really is, you know, because I come in. Sometimes I come in with things and I'm like, I think this. And you're like, well, what about these points? And I'm like, oh, you're right. So it's not that I and ditto. It's not that I wouldn't want to see you on the red carpet at the Met Gala. But like, I just feel like we can make that happen. No, this is for no, you. You're right. If you... This is a learn. This is a teach. This is a teachable moment. And I'm and I'm learning. And I wish I wish that more conversations that happen in the political arena were like this instead of people, you know, just getting immediately defensive. Well, I feel like I've learned a lot about the Met Gala and how we would protest it, um, but we should get to our conversation today. Just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation about V for Vendetta with Evan from Left of the Projector. 
All right, we are now joined by Evan, the host of Left of the Projector Pod, a weekly podcast on film from a leftist perspective. It covers film with guests of all stripes, layering in theory whenever possible. Evan lives in New York and works in the tech industry while remaining involved in local grassroots organizing efforts. You can follow Evan on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at Left of the Projector Pod. Evan, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Frank and Rivka. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So a little bit of uh, a little bit of background history. Evan and I were TikTok mutuals. You had an original account that was banned, I'm assuming, right? I did. Yes, I did have an account uh, that was banned. That's correct. How does that work? Why does an account like that get banned? Because I am not a TikToker yet. Their official reasoning was I was um, obfuscating democracy. Whoa, they actually said that? In a in in longer language, yes. Wow, Damn. I didn't realize they got that granular with their banning critiques. Um, I mean, it's yes. something that happens very commonly to leftist accounts getting banned all the time. But then, uh, when we were getting ready to launch this show, we, you know, we put our thing out on TikTok and discovered that you're doing, you know, essentially the same show. Uh, <laughs> so we reconnected and um, wanted to have you on because, you know. Even if there's two podcasts about, you know, movies and leftism, we should be comrades. So I'm really I'm really glad that you're you're here today. Yeah, no, it's, I, I don't think, you know, there this kind of content I think is important. So I will, you know, it's good to have to be on here and to discuss movies. That's what I like to do. So, well, we're happy to have you. And you chose for us to watch today. V for Vendetta, directed by James McTeague. This was great to rewatch. Um, this was written by Lana and Lily Wachowski, based on the graphic novel written by Alan Moore, who wrote The Watchmen, and illustrated by David Lloyd. Stars Natalie Portman, Hugo Weaving, Stephen Rea, Stephen Fry, and John Hurt, with a budget of $54 million and a worldwide gross of $134 million. So according to IMDb, V for Vendetta is set in the not-too-distant future. England and its government have become a totalitarian fascist state. The story follows Evie Hammond, played by Natalie Portman, who's rescued from being mugged by a masked vigilante known as V, played by Hugo Weaving. Incomparably charismatic and skilled in the art of combat, V begins an explosive agitprop campaign against the government, urging his fellow citizens to rise up and join him in blowing up Parliament in one year on the 5th of November. As Evie uncovers the truth about V's mysterious background, she also discovers the truth about herself— and emerges as an unlikely ally in V's plot to bring freedom and justice back to a society fraught with cruelty and corruption. Classic hero's journey. So this film was released on March 17th, 2006. So a little bit of historical context. We are two years into George W. Bush's second term as president. Mm. This is five years after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and three years into the Iraq War, Wars which would go on to result in the estimated deaths of over 7,000 U.S. troops, 100,000 Afghans, and 1 million Iraqis. And that includes both soldiers and civilians. Also, the film Crash wins the Academy Award for Best Picture, beating Brokeback Mountain. Blu-ray discs and the Nintendo Wii are released. Vice President Dick Cheney accidentally shoots someone in the face while <laughs> quail hunting. <laughs> And an E. coli outbreak happens in the U.S. in uh, spinach, which poisons over 100 people. And over the summer, the housing market bubble bursts, which will eventually snowball into the 2007 and 8 financial crisis. 2006. And we're all wearing wow. ridiculously low pants. 
which are now back. Ridiculously low pants, a lot of gel, spiked hair, still mm-hmm. frosted tips, a lot of Abercrombie definitely oh, happening yeah. as well. Uggs are happening all over. Brutal time. People are still going to the mall, I guess, too. People are still going to the mall. Yeah, this is yeah before Amazon upended the entire retail industry. So, Evan, why did you pick V for Vendetta for us to watch this week? So, I, I remember seeing this movie in the theater and being pretty... I, I enjoy it. I really enjoyed it in the theater. And when after it came out, after I saw it, I then found out that it was based on this graphic novel, which I read not too long after that. And I've kind of, I guess now thinking about movies a lot and thinking about what's in them and kind of the content and how they might be relevant today. I think this movie has a lot of relevance today. And so I went back and reread the novel and thought, okay, now I want to rewatch the, the movie. And I thought, you know, this would be a perfect... Perfect avenue to, to talk about it. So you recently reread the graphic novel in preparation for this, right? Yes. I hadn't read it for, gosh, 10 plus years at least. And I read it last week. I kind of skimmed through it again earlier today just to kind of refresh my memory. And it's more graphic, you know? You know, It's very, sure. very dark, much darker than the film. And they changed some things, but I think the movie did a pretty good job as far as bringing it, the vision to life. Yeah, in rewatching this movie, it had been, I couldn't even tell you how many years since I've seen it. I remember seeing it in 2006 and being like, whoa, this is so cool. This guy's got knives. That's awesome. (laughs) And definitely not having the politics resonate with me at that age. I mean, this was like, I guess, my senior of high school. So like, you know, definitely understood the the revolutionary undercurrents, but not in a really uh, meaningful way. Um, rewatching it now, it was cool kind of picking up on all of that and being like, damn, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of pretty layered ideas in this film, but it is very Hollywood. Mm. It is very, yes. it is very glossy. The production design is very, uh, you know, it's a lot of like bold, sharp colors. Lots of leather. <laughs> Lots of leather. Yes. And it's very cinematic, but like, I wouldn't count that as like a knock against the movie because I did really enjoy it on a rewatch. Rivka, what was your experience? Yeah, I have not seen this film since 2006 in the theaters. And it was it was interesting to go back to. I mean, 2006 for me was, yeah, I remember protesting George Bush high school. Like it was sort of that was where I remember that being very much a part of my high school experience was like after school, going out, being a part of those protests, which was, I guess, a very New York experience as well. Um, so I remember that resonating at that time because that was this call to come out on the streets, you know, so it felt really exciting. In my rewatch, I <laughs> I was a little shocked at first, I think, just like it was not how I recalled it being. And maybe that was just like the nostalgia of the time. It was like, <laughs> like you were saying, I was just, there's so much leather and I was not, I found the aesthetics jarring and I think also the Hollywoodness of it jarring. It's just not how I remembered it. So it took me a while to get into it. Also, just took me a while. Like, the performances in this are wonderful. I think the acting is great. Yeah. yeah. Natalie Portman's British accent. I just wasn't ready. I didn't remember how jarring that was. So it took a moment. I just needed to settle in. It was nice being like, oh, she can't She can't do everything. Because Natalie Portman's incredible. But it's like, she. all right, she has limitations. She can't do everything. And you know what? And it didn't matter. It was like, for me, I loved... Ana de Armas in um, Blonde when she plays Marilyn Monroe. She doesn't, she can't get the accents are and everything, but 
it was jarring. It was jarring. But the performances I thought were amazing. It took a while for me to get into it. I thought the movie took a while to get into itself and to find its footing. I thought it starts off being like swords and, you know, we are we're doing this superhero thing, which is not, you know, I'm like, this is a lefty superhero who doesn't believe in coincidences. And here we are. So it took a while for me to get to the message. I don't know that I loved it, but I liked it. Evan, what was your experience rewatching it at this point in your life? Well, at, f- at first, I, w- I was thinking in the back of my head of the novel because I'm trying to think like, okay, unfortunately, you have that in your mind. Like, oh, how did they succeed in bringing the actual artist vision, the real artist vision of this mm-hmm. to life? And I think they succeeded pretty well. And I'll kind of maybe mention later some of the things where I think they didn't quite hit the mark. I agree that it's definitely very Hollywood eyes. I mean, it, it was billed more as an action movie, I think, than a movie that discusses the idea of revolution. Yeah. I don't remember the promo for it, but I have a feeling that's probably how it was. The, the The trailer is him like throwing knives and the, you know, the parliament blowing up. And so it's not very, they don't ever mention the word anarchy in the movie, actually, except for one throwaway line of a guy robbing a convenience store, he says, it's anarchy in England. And so they tried to make a revolutionary film without it being a revolutionary film. Well, I mean, I think it's very telling that this movie came out when it did. Um, You know, this is, like we mentioned, this is in the middle of the Iraq War. Bush had passed the Patriot Act a few years prior, so I think the idea of, like, surveillance was starting to creep up in the American culture, and... And people were, this is also around the time that Bush's popularity started to wane and and the anti-war movement really took off. So it it, it makes sense that this movie snuck through at this time. You know, I mean, Hollywood for, you know, Hollywood is a mostly liberal place. So I'm not surprised that this, you know, got greenlit at this time, especially, and I didn't know this, that that Lana and Lily Wachowski wrote the screenplay for this. And their films always include this sort of like, revolutionary undercurrent and honestly they're really good at it i i I think personally yeah i mean they're maoists i mean they clearly have the idea of revolutionary politics it's interesting that this came out at the same time as children of men which is a movie that we just did on the podcast and i had that so in contrast because the worlds are so similar that they're both worlds that have our fascist state in london after a war, you know, after a world war of some Mm -hmm. kind that sort of destroyed the U.S. and um, how those were both portrayed, I thought was interesting to contrast just the worlds of how these fascist states run. And I think that was that was probably, you know, after you watch Children of Men and there's so much detail and there's so much specificity and there's so much terror to watch something that feels slightly more cartoonish. And it was I mean, what did you think of the world? Like it, it to me, I guess that's where I was like, oh, this sort of cartoonish space that lacked specificity i guess i didn't find it as terrifying as i wanted it to be it's interesting you mentioned about the iraq war because i know that in at least the novel and i think in the book too in the movie too is the the party that's associated with i guess the chancellor is i think it's called norse fire and it's like basically a fictional nazi party you know Mm. in the in the book it's Mm -hmm. actually an n a red n on a black flag so but i think that they try to make like the like the thing with the screens i don't know, i guess they're trying to make it seems like slightly futuristic but yeah. it like was a little cheesy but it also <laughs> was what it was like in the book so i think that's it must be what they were going for even if it did feel cheesy 
I, I don't know if that's the, the sense you're saying, Rukta. Well, that it was cheesy, but I guess that it that it was and maybe that's the Hollywoodization of it, just that it to me, the world itself, I didn't I was missing what's with it, what's up with the people, you know, what is going to drive them at the end towards actually wanting this revolution like it was clear, you know, the clearest part was about the hospital and where they, the disease was being forced. I mean, there was some imagery there that was really intense and great. Um, but in terms of what was so beyond the finger men and I don't know, just specificity. I was like, where are all the people of color in this world? Where there were just things that I'm like, this felt like sure. a very white. They killed them all, I think. I mean, they talk about camps, right? They they do. They mention the camps. But then at the end, you see a few faces. So I didn't feel that there was like a specific. I felt like they were just sort of not really dealing with it and maybe like slightly, you know. But I guess that was a Hollywoodization of it. And I'm having seen Children of Men. You're just I'm just, just missing a lot of texture. But that could be the genre. And that could just be me. I mean, this is more action than it is like a drama, you know, that Children of Men. I haven't seen that movie in a while, but it, I remember it being very like you feel like you're in it in it. Whereas this, I feel like you're kind of, you're not. I, I did kind of appreciate how it remained broad in that this is like a religious fascist state. And they're very clear, mm, like, you know, this, mm -hmm. like the chancellor was a man of faith. And then, you know, there's all of the the signage that says what is like strength through unity, unity through faith. So we're to understand that this is like a religious fascist state. They don't say Christianity, but, you know, this is probably Christianity. I mean, like their symbol is across upside down connected with one another so it is very evocative so like i appreciated that that got snuck in you know and then they and they also mirror a lot of aspects of our own state and especially in the u.s you know like the oppression of queer people is mm -hmm. very prescient in this film and demonstrated through the characters of gordon and valerie you know, there's the constant scapegoating of immigrants. Uh, you know, Gordon has the Quran saved in his vault and says, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not Muslim, but like I I don't have to be to find its images stirring and its poetry beautiful. Um, and they even sneak in really quickly the uh, the English oppression of Ireland really fast in that like throwaway line about Finch's mother, the the inspector when they're like, mm -hmm. oh, wasn't your mother from Ireland? And, you know, so like. It was broad, and which I appreciated because I feel like that allows more buy-in from the audience. Mm -hmm. um, but I did think that they they got some stuff in there that I was like, okay, this is these are real ideas, these are real uh, oppressive forces, and these are like specific marginalized groups who are also oppressed in our real world. So I didn't bump up against it too much. I think that was I think my experience was like a lot of more taste, but you can't deny the impact that this film had on movements and on the world. And if you think about we're five years out from Occupy and Anonymous definitely takes on a lot of imagery. And so this definitely is one of these films that you see then replicated and having a relationship to existing movements and protest movements. So there's definitely that. I mean, I think this is an important movie and it's important that it came out at this time. I think there's an aspect, too, of... You mentioned uh, I, I was thinking about, you know, the movements like Occupy around that time, because that's, you know, right after the housing crash. But I feel like part of the movie, I don't know, if this is intentional. It's almost like a cautionary tale. I mean, I guess jumping sort of ahead in the film is that they I think in his uh, the speech that he gives when he hijacks the TV station or whatever, I can't remember the name of the building, but he talks about how the people had voted in this chancellor. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an important distinction in the movie is that the people brought fascism to their country. Granted, they committed a gigantic false flag of 
murdering a hundred thousand people to ramp up the fear. But I feel like that is like a super direct parallel to especially Nazi Germany, Reichstag fire. They voted in Hitler was voted for originally, and then they becomes chancellor. Like obviously mm-hmm. they were going for that thing, but I think it serves as a cautionary tale to America as you know, things aren't going to happen on accident. It's going to be because we, in some sense, allow it to happen. Yeah, I I had that written down as well because I pointing out people's complicity, even if it's even if it's only a tacit complicity. But like you're saying, Evan, like th- these fascist movements don't just happen on their own. You know, there. I mean, occasionally there's like a, a right wing coup, and you know that that can happen, but it happens when you know conditions in a country decay. I mean, there is the famous Vladimir Lenin quote, fascism is capitalism in decay, which means when the material conditions of people, of the citizens of a state start to degrade, you know, as they are currently in 2023 in the U.S., you know, with, you know, Mm -hmm. income inequality, you know, people leaving paycheck to paycheck, people are going to gravitate towards a more extreme explanation and ideology to to justify why this is happening to them and then you know that's what creates the conditions for for demagogues for for fascism you know yeah and one theme that this film i think got really right was how fear can rob you of common sense and empathy and how the propaganda of fear in a fascist state is used and that was really strong in this and how especially at a time where our government was using fear so well to put us in this war so yes i i really appreciate that how this film orchestrates the propaganda of fear in a fascist state and how fascist governments are the terrorists like they really show you that right i think there's they're saying that v is the terrorist the government is the terrorist terrorizing the people and then they have this great line you really think the blowing up parliament's going to make this country a better place there's no certainty only opportunity. I think you can be pretty certain that if anyone does show up, Creed, you'll black bag every one of them. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. There it is. You know, and that's that was the, you know, and I think that was a great, that was that moment of like, right, we shouldn't be afraid of our government. They should be afraid of us. How do we garner this um, collective power? Now, there's other stuff where the film go- goes that I'm not sure, and I'm curious your thoughts on... We, especially in contrast to us having had this conversation with children of men, what do you do after you blow up parliament and what movement is going to be there ready to go after we destroy, necessarily destroy this fascist state, but are they even ready for this moment in time? And I was just like, that's where this film, I was like, oh, this is, this is just going to be a disaster. Yeah. V the V's just like a solo, but I'm like, I don't, I don't trust this guy. Great voice, buttery as hell. But I don't trust this. Like, who is this man? I had that written down too. the kind of like, okay, he, not the voice, but the, what's your point about, <laughs> you know, post, that would have been, that would have been quite the coincidence. Uh, not, a, not, there are coincidence. no coincidences. Um, but the, the fact that, yes, they blow a parliament, the people are energized, there's going to be a movement, but what happens next? And I think. I think that's part of where the movie loses me. And I wasn't at the same place when I watched it the first time as, you know, as a communist. I don't know that you can just be, he doesn't say he's an anarchist, but his his V is like an upside down A, you know, the symbolism is there. And I think the idea of, you know, a lot of that you can somehow create a society without a state or initially, and it feels like 
the symbol of blowing up the parliament is like blowing up the state in some sense. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how you can actually then move forward without some kind of apparatus. And there was, he had an idea, but it was only an idea, right? It can't, the idea can't die. I think they said like you can't kill an idea. Mm -hmm. But what will they do with it? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And like V as the symbol and as the instigator and catalyst of this, it's like, it's very... It's very lofty. It's very cinematic, but there is no it's inherent organize. It's uh, sure it's definitely suspicious, but there's also no built-in organizing that's grow that's cropping up along with this movement. So no, it it very much kind of leans into the idea of like, you know, what could save an entire country is just one guy. It's just one guy right. with fucking superpowers like i mean it's a little bit of a white savior complex right a thousand percent and it's a superhero complex i mean that's kind of the problem with superheroes right oh big time you know it was interesting i was watching this with my partner and right around that government should be afraid of their people line she was like she's like this kind of feels kind of right wingish like this kind of mm -hmm. feels like i'm getting like january 6th like vibes of like you know like people should just topple the government and you know we had this conversation about basically where I, I I kind of posited I was like you know what happened on January 6th in the US those people almost like right right action wrong justification you know and and I'm right. not I'm not condoning the like the insurrection of the of like the US government and the, the the capitol building but this idea that like you know these are people who believe for whatever reason, you know, they've been lied to, right-wing media, Donald Trump, that, like, this is, like, this is the reason that their lives are assumedly the way that they are. You know, you don't, you don't get that riled up unless you are, things are, you know, bad in your life, like we're, like we've been saying. But I don't know, that you can misconstrue, that it's easy to misconstrue what is happening within your own country and, and have sort of, like, these revolutionary, revolutionary ideas, or I guess counter-revolutionary um, and implement them in the wrong way. I don't know. Does, does that make yeah. sense? Did I, did you oh, have I, I mean, V is very Q in some ways. Like in some ways, I'm like, who is this? Who they? Where, where has the organizing happened that he's connecting to the people beyond his one message on TV and sending masks out? Right. Like send your mask out and like send Das Kapital. It's like send something, send some literature. Like if you're going to UPS a package to the people, like <laughs> send them, like somehow we're supposed to expect that they understand what the mask is for and that everyone has really gotten on the same page. And to me, that is the, that's a unuseful mythology because I, I agree with you that this energy is very similar of like, there's going to be fear and an energy and like this idea this feeling that we have to rebel against something that's not working but if you rebel against it and just blow something up and there's not an organized or educated perspective as to why it's just going to be the same shit again like and that's not saying that's not necessary either well as i say and you have and like and one thing in the end of the scene like the final like the final scene is they're coming into parliament you see all of the military people there and they're not able to get a response from the government the government is basically They've killed all the the main players. And so they kind of just step aside. Like, what are they going to do with this military apparatus now? You know, like, I feel like they have this infrastructure that I'm not saying that military is inherently bad. I'm just saying in this case, these were people who were just like black bagging people, throwing them into torture, you know, right. which I think was probably a nod to like Abu Ghraib, you know, Bush era kind mm -hmm. of thing, too. But yeah, I, I mean, 
it's satisfying, but also very unsatisfying. That's a great point, Evan, that I, I think. And one thing that I think is really inter- uh, interesting is we alluded to it, this idea that there are no coincidences, which I love in that theme. And of course, also gets illustrated visually with the epic domino shot, which is that giant V puts it down. And th- that was my favorite moment. I-, I loved that. I that I was here for this aesthetic. And that took two days for them to film and like 200 professional domino makers. I thought it was epic. But that to me illustrated like everything, every action has a reaction like we are all connected. And that was what's that was so beautifully organized. I mean, you had to really plan and organize that to make that V like come down like that. And he's if he had spent as much time <laughs> organizing the people effectively as he did organizing that V domino shape. I mean, this man had time. That was one of the <laughs> Hollywood bullshit things where I was like, oh, so he just in the middle of <laughs> toppling a government he was like no, must do is set up this elaborate domino in a v shape where did he get all those dominoes by the way where did, where did he, he get, get half the shit in his house like the the mask well i see oh so here's my theory and it's kind of more in the book i think he was living in a museum i think he was living in the british museum because he had all those cool paintings british museum of bushwick like what well I mean, the only reason i think of that is because he had like a massive collection of paintings and he did like, he had the sculptures and all this stuff he had all this great stuff and then this disgusting little bet i just didn't it wasn't for me the aesthetics uh, i don't know if you're going to bring it up you all but i think and i mentioned the the torture thing is i don't know what what's your thoughts on the evs capture and Perhaps I've stolen your question. No, I'm glad <laughs> you're I, going that, there, I feel Evan. Like that's, a, that's a big um, piece of the movie that I spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely psychotic. I mean, it's like, a you know, you're like, I thought it was psychotic. I'm like, okay, so this is your plan. This is just, this is what I got from it. And I'm willing to be wrong. But he saves her, then recaptures her and... In his, I guess, museum slash underground Bushwick dungeon. (laughs) Puts her in, which I also missed because it doesn't feel this long, but I guess this was like almost a year, right? Like has the time to recreate what would have been his experience in this sort of dungeon where he had been like captured and he's just like recreating that she thinks she's captured by the fascist state and they're trying to get out of her who V is. So basically he has gotten her and he's like, oh, are you going to give my name away? Like crazy. Like, oh, if you were captured, like, would you give up my name? And he's for real torturing her, uh, starving her, then like puts this piece of paper so that he, she can read the story of um, another woman that he was captured with, which is this beautiful love story between her and this other woman. And like, you know, you get some context there. I get it. Then she finally like comes out and I guess she's like willing to die. She's willing to go up against the firing squad and not give her give his name. And then she comes out and she's like, oh, and there's like a fake dummy. And, and we put we realize like, oh, he did this for her so that she could not have fear. What kind of true crime like psychotic? I said this man <laughs> is not to be trusted. Oh, and then on top of that. He's like romancing her, like, but won't show his face. It's just levels and levels of craziness. And then she leaves. She comes back, right? And to top it all off at the very end, he's like, okay, well, this is my plan. I'm going to blow up, you know, parliament, as you know, but I want you to like see you before I do it because like I'm all in love with you after I've done all this to you. And um, but you know what? I'm not going to blow up parliament. It's 
it's up to you, babe. Like, I'm going to give this massive weighty choice to you because uh, I decided that you represent the people. Like, (laughs) Well, when you put it like that. (laughs) This man? Mm -mm. So I... I'm hard pressed to disagree with like the crazy aspect of what he's doing, <laughs> but let me pose a, a, I don't know if it's a theory, a thought about it. <laughs> Please. And I think it's a terrible representation for what I think he was trying to do. It's almost like he wanted to radicalize her and have her like understand the moment, but this isn't, this isn't the way to do that. And also, wasn't she already radicalized? She had, she had already watched her parents like... She had enough trauma. I think she could have gotten there with like, give her a book, give her a chance. You got to torture her. But doesn't she then, uh, she tries to turn him into the, uh, when he's at the priest, she tries to rat him out. Yeah, she gives him I mean, would you not? Like any sane person, I think would. (laughs) Like this man has a mask on. I'm just saying he couldn't figure out a different way. You think that Mr. V for Vendetta, Vindictive, isn't pissed that he tried to turn her in and like that's why he's torturing her? But I don't think he knew that yet, right? Like how could he, unless he like had a bug on her or something, you know? But if he didn't know that, why does he do it? Because the last uh, interaction he had with her was her trying to give him up. It's not a justification. V is obviously psychotic. V for Vendetta, y'all. He has a vendetta. A very flawed revolutionary leader. This man is not to be trusted. Not to be trusted. Although where she arrives afterwards, the idea of you have no fear, you are free. Yes, we could have arrived there differently for sure. And I think her watching Gordon get black bagged and and taken away after he uses his uh, late night talk show to you know, criticize the government, which was a moment that I really loved, which is like, you know, her friend is this talk show host and he's like, it's going to be a good show tonight. And it's like this really like slapstick, uh, you know, thing with the, they're making fun of the chancellor and it's, it's using satire. It's using comedy as protest and to like Mm -hmm. to stoke revolution. And then he gets black bagged in the middle of the night. So she's, that's like her political development is like watching these people who speak out, suffer the consequences of that. Didn't need to be tortured, but the idea of you are free when you have no more fear, I, I don't know. I think it's really, it's a beautiful idea. And, you know, there is the, in revolutionary struggles and real revolutionaries understand like, you know, my life is, I'm 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 going to give up my life for this. And being willing to make that sacrifice as the only way that the system is taken down, because it's not just... Revolution isn't just one event. It's a chain of events. And this movie illustrates that, you know, it culminates. It culminates with the people taking power. A domino of events, if you will. So the only people that are that are killed are, you know, some the what do they call them? The fingermen and then some of the the people he was getting revenge on. You know, there isn't the doctor and the priest or the cardinal, whatever. I, I don't know. I feel like he was there was trying to give a message. I don't know if this ties into him trying to torture, you know, Evie's character or Evie. You know that it's not a it's 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 a messy business. Revolution is not without violence. You know mm. yeah. the system is is the violent act. You know capitalism is a violent act against the people. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, that's they're not maybe those two things aren't connected. But the idea that she had to understand it, but you know, give her some like literature. Like they're just in this basement for like six months. Just like read Lenin. She's had she's already had a lot of violence though. So like that to me was she had all that violence in her childhood. He could have just 
maybe sat down with a cup of tea. I don't know. And to your point, Frank, I think I actually feel that the the idea that uh, you have to be devoid of fear or that being devoid of fear is useful is dangerous because I think it's inhuman. I don't think I think fear can be a useful emotion. And I think a lot of this feeling this movie to me had some things that felt very binary. And I get that. I think that's just the mm. world of the genre, like these very extremes. But I think the extremism in this case is not healthy. I mean, I don't think a lot of this was healthy psychologically, but that we have to learn to live with fear and have to be able to be critical of our own fear so that we can be conscious of when it's healthy and not healthy. Like we should be afraid of the system of capitalism, for example. We should be afraid of some of these things. We should be afraid of climate change. So I don't know. I think it's very superhero to be like, and now I no longer have fear and I can do the fearless. And I think being able to be courageous is not necessarily devoid of fear. I think it's I think it's acting along with and walking in step with fear because you have a greater purpose. That, no, that's a really good point. And you're right. That that binary definitely can be dangerous. And yeah, this movie's kind of saying, yeah, like if, you, if, you, if you're not afraid, you can do anything, which is, I, you're right. That is a bad message. I, I took it more as like the, the fear of death specifically, but mm-hmm. yeah. Which I think it was what it was going for but you're like mm-hmm. honestly fuck you after you did that was crazy real quickly there's that line from uh game of thrones uh some might remember which is bran asks ned like you know can it can is it possible for a brave man to be afraid and ned says the only time you can be brave is when you're afraid so mm. yeah game of thrones very good book i think also so like the government is in in this universe is instilling fear to control its people. And I think what he wants is for her to give up that fear of the government. I think I think that message is a little muddled, you know, because I think you're right. It does seem like it's fear of death. And so I don't think they I don't think they, they got that one right. Yeah. They lost it in the in the hyper honestly, I think it's some hyper machismo like superhero shit where you're like you have the opportunity here of this for Evie Hammond to become this like badass character and they sort of stole her agency by making it like her path towards this is being psychologically tortured by this man who falls in love with her like what's new but there is that beautiful moment where she walks out in the rain you know and the head shaving is like epic and classic and she looks so great with a shaved head so <laughs> just like you, you said just that like, with like so much jealousy in your in your voice oh just i like, do she she this liked is it not she a was head. a big fan of it right she i mean it worked for natalie Portman. and like the, she's just she acts her face off which is why again like the, the accent was only jarring in the beginning um and she saw you know i thought that was a beautiful i get that was all there to sort of move her but you're like she really could have just like been the hero of this film and we could have done without v like from step one, he could have been like, here's my plan. It was all set up and she could have done something different. Well, I have some an interesting thing and I wonder what you think of it is. So in the book, they flip it. So in the very beginning, they blow a parliament and at the end, they oh. blow up the justice symbol. And I think it's mm. better in the movie. I mean, I think it's also visually Hollywood. They're going to blow a parliament at the end. But I think it's a different. I think it's interesting now, we didn't really talk about the blowing up of like the justice department. Like, I guess it's like Lady Justice. Like mm-hmm. he has like he's in the book. He's like having constant conversation with her. Like he's kind of he's definitely painted as a little bit unstable. Sure. I mean, in both, but definitely in the book, too. So I, I don't know if you think would you think that that would be had been better? Do you think that it's like what do you make of like the justice? Like they kind of like just kind of don't really 
talk about that part. Like you think of parliament, that's like the vision of people, I guess, and maybe not living in the UK. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's probably just a Hollywood choice of just yeah. like, what are we going to blow up at the end? Big Ben. That's going to be the climax just for our our simple American audience that doesn't understand the UK at all. But that makes but that makes sense in the comic. That's more of a actually like a symbolic gesture or a symbolic action rather than something that's a little bit more uh, spectacle driven. I mean, this film is all about the sim- symbols, right? I think the most visually exciting moment is the sea of the Guy Fox masks and this idea that anonymity in a movement is really important force that there there is something really important to learn about how we decentralize movements and break down the hierarchy again without any real organization i don't know where that leaves us or what the intention is and actually without any real intention or organization that could probably be quite dangerous but i'm curious your thoughts about the guy fox mask and and sort of and also its relationship to movements like Occupy and Anonymous. Well, so it's funny. I lived in I lived in England and like I just outside of London in 2000 like around the time oh, wow. this movie came out. I was actually home in winter break. Like I did like a study abroad or not study abroad like a, a short masters program there. And they celebrate Guy Fox Day. Like they have a fireworks celebration on the Thames. Everyone goes, some people wear masks, you know, the whole Isn't that like their Halloween? Yeah. I mean, they don't really celebrate Halloween in our in the sense that we do. Right. Like they do now because it's a reason to go out and get drunk, you know, who needs a reason for that? But when I talk to people there, because I didn't really know much about the holiday, most people there don't, at least the people in the in this school weren't that into it, like it wasn't a thing. But I think that people think of it in the sense of I think it goes back to that line of, you know, the government should be afraid of us. It's like we have more power than the government realizes. We can enact some kind of change, whether it's blowing up parliament or a protest movement. And also, you you mentioned the an anonymity of a protest movement, too. And I, I actually just earlier today posted a video uh, on TikTok about, you know, the idea of a protest. Like, what will it take to get people back in the streets again? Mm-hmm. You know, we saw the Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter protests. and. What conditions will have to occur to do that? And not just that is how do you convince people to do it? Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like Black Lives Matter protests, I feel like started organically. This this is not organic. He's creating a movement. So Yeah, no, but I think when I think about this, the way that this occurs in the film, what was striking is right now because he has sent everyone these masks and they have something to unify under, they as he's talking about intentionally creating anarchy, I think maybe in that sense they use the word. He's intentionally trying to create chaos and anarchy. So people are sort of, so the government is agitated and people are ready to go for this moment. But they have that scene where, it, you know, you see a lot of people putting on the masks and just doing different things. And then they shoot a masked protester agitator. And it turns out to be this white little girl and so that's the moment that really gets everyone so upset because the fingerman shoots her, right? And even in this, though, it still feels quite coded that I think that the choice of mask, that it's this sea of white faces that is just subconsciously considered to be the every man, every body. You know, they certainly there's many figures that you could pull from who are revolutionaries of color who could have been that mask. There's women who could have been that mask. Guy Fox just feels like worse were to assume that's the everyman the everybody is this white man so everybody under it is anonymous 
And also that it's this, then suddenly it's this little girl. And I was just thinking, I guess, as a creative, how would I, if we were to redo this film now, what would the mask be? And what would the best mask be for a protest movement? You know, if you're going to, because I think some symbols like that are important. That might be why your why your partner also felt like it felt a little January 6th-y, Frank, because it looks it looks a little January 6th-y. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I did, the one thing I wanted to say is the, Evan, when you were saying like, you know, people celebrate Guy Fox Day, but it, the, 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 the relevance or the actual meaning behind it is kind of lost. I think that's a thing that like, that just happens with a lot yeah. of these movement, like events or struggles or achievements, you know, like the, the meaning and the, the effect and like the historical context gets watered down. Like, I mean, I think of just like Labor Day here in the U.S., which is supposed to celebrate, you know, the victories of the, you know, the 20th century labor movement, most of which gave us like so much of the, mm -hmm. uh, like the, the equity that we have. And like, and granted it's, you know, it's slowly slipping away and slipping away, but like, you know, people are just like, oh, Labor Day, end of summer, party, that's it. Celebrate your Labor Day by buying a bunch of things off of Amazon. Yeah, And it's exactly. not also in May when it should be, which is like the May Day. Yeah, May Day. Yeah, but you're right, though. It does lose its, it's commercialized. You know, it's turned into, yeah, like a, like sales, right. Oh, you said which mask it should be, and I think it should be Thomas Sankara. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, I was even thinking like Lucy Parsons who is sort of a leading black woman who is a figure in the American anarchism and the radical labor movement, or just how would it totally have changed? I'm just thinking about that film. If it was a different face, it would totally be a different experience for certainly for Americans in 2006. I mean, I think being like, you know, a, I mean, obviously the United Kingdom is, is a diverse place, but being like British, you know, monarchy driven white Christian nation, I feel like it makes sense in the sense of their culture to have, you know, like the Guy Fox, but for, you know, for right or wrong. I think it makes sense because it's a colonial, in, in, not the Guy, but, you know, it's a colonial gesture and idea and assumption that like yeah. power happens under this guise of whiteness and masculinity. And I think even in this radical film, that like the idea that like the revolution will happen under the face of this white man is um, not unintentional. It might be unconscious, but it's there's an intention there. It makes me think of Franz Fanon talking talks a lot about the role of the white masks and the and its role in colonization. And I just think when we see masks like that, especially in storytelling, it's significant and important. And this movie was also made a full decade before anyone in Hollywood was considering the idea that like all pretty much all the people we see on screen are white. Like this is like way before because that that shift only really happened in Hollywood, like in like the mid 2010s when people started rightfully being like, oh, that's right. Well, this is a white industry run by white people. And all the stories we tell feature white. People. Well, I wouldn't say anyone. I would say until I mean, yes. you know, we have a whole legacy of black and people of color filmmakers do. But like you mean like in mainstream blockbuster superhero films. I mean, when it started getting spoken about mm. and obviously it like people had been speaking about this as a problem in Hollywood for decades, you know, like filmmakers of color for sure. Like we've always known that this problem has existed. There have always been people who have spoken out about it, but it didn't become a 
mainstream idea in Hollywood that this needed to be rectified until like the mid 2010s, I I feel like. Yeah, I mean, it's not really it's not really yet a mainstream (laughs) problem. I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of talk, but when you look at the numbers, it's still a major problem. Yes. And I only bring that up because the, the unsurprising to see a movie that like only features white people made in this time. That yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, correct. But I think it's important to talk about it because I think often in the dialogue, there's this like, well, that was of the time, you know, and I think it's important to talk mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Like and we were all growing up and gestating in that of the time. And so psychologically, we were only seeing mirrored back to us a very like this. Every man is a white man. You know, this. Mm-hmm idea of justice and revolution is going to happen in the face of Guy Fox. like that definitely affected me you know in ways that I'm probably just figuring out yeah especially you mentioned Fanon's you know and the idea of like colonies like you know all the colonies that had to break free of England and other obviously other countries too but they don't they it's almost like ironic that it's these white savior that's saving them like I think we briefly I think we maybe mentioned earlier, like it's like a very white savior complex. And in that sense, Evan, I'm actually down with this being like, you know, this is the true crime version of like white saviorism. And V is a fucking psychopath. That's actually where I land at the end of this conversation. Sorry. Sorry to the people who love this movie. I don't think anyone's going to argue that V is a psychopath in this movie. Although I did <laughs> one last thing. One of the last lines he has is, which I really loved, is a revolution without dancing is a revolution not worth having, which mm. I thought was like the Tony Cade Bambara quote about, you know, the artist's role is to make the revolution irresistible. So I thought that was really lovely. All right, Evan, this is the point in the episode where we hand out the awards. So our first award is called A Point with a View. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. I guess you would say <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Natalie Portman or Evie Hammond. Evie, yeah. I mean, she makes the decision uh. at the end to complete the mission. I realize that the idea came from V, but his idea didn't come from himself. You know, I'm gonna say Gordon, her her friend, the talk show host, because mm-hmm. he's got this secret vault of all of this religious iconography, revolutionary iconography, stuff that he's keeping secret and he knows would get him, you know, killed. And then he, you know, basically is like, I'm going to, he doesn't think that he's going to get killed because he's he, on the phone with his agent. He's like, oh, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Which is an interesting nuance, I think, because there's that classist moment there. You know, he does feel. Sure. I'll be above it. I'm wealthy and I have the ratings. But he uses his platform for, you know, trying to enact as much change as he can through it. I'm with you, Evan. I think uh, I give it to Evie. Evie wins. Our next award is Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in this movie. I'm going to go with the doctor, mm-hmm. Delia Surridge. Ooh. Although Creedy is a pretty close, uh, close one. And only because she creates all of this in some sense, right? She was it like the mad scientist that's kind of pulling on like Nazi experiments on people to create super viruses or God knows what. So she makes him, but Creedy is pretty despicable. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with both Creedy and Supreme Chancellor Sutler because they're like, you know, kind of like a one-two combo. Creedy's mm-hmm. like, what, like the head of the CIA, essentially, just, you know, black bagging people. Sutler is the, the fascist leader. Also, just want to mention... Um, really brilliant casting in John Hurt oh, I love because John, John Hurt. Hurt, who plays the 
who plays the chancellor, played Winston in the 1984 movie um, that came out in 1984. So that was a, a nod to like- face. <laughs> He's just got that face. He's just got that face. Rifka, who's yours? it has got that face. I don't know. This is kind of tough. I'm probably also going to give it. I think the Chancellor is pretty despicable, as are the Minutemen, with a special little tiny award that goes to my dear V, because because <laughs> if you enact the same kind of torture you went through, like, come on, like, nah. And our final award is A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. What about Evie's parents? Mm. Ooh, that's a good one. As because I mean, this is not in the book, and I like that they included it in this. That she has this kind of legacy of there was a protest, revolution, revolutionary movement, mm-hmm. and so it would have been cool to see that. I guess like the pre pre movie, you know, like the yeah, how it came to be with them. I love that. That's a really good one. I'm gonna go with uh, the. The dude who ran uh, the British state TV, for like one of the guy of like the inner council. I want to see a movie that is just about how like propaganda gets made, you know, and like and all of the channels that it goes through, and like like mm-hmm. basically, I want to see like ma- manufacturing consent put to film. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's it's an HBO an series right there. I'm gonna give it to Evie because even though this movie is about her, like I don't, I don't even feel. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. what happens next? Where do we go from here, girl? Are we going into therapy? I hope so. You want to see Evie realizing that V was actually the villain of the movie? Like that's the yeah, sequel. and maybe, but maybe she, yeah, and maybe she. I, I think she's on to. I think I do think she's been radicalized, and she's she has potential to be a great revolutionary, but. Now that she's the chosen face of the people and got to make that big choice for everyone, as he puts it to her, <laughs> then um, where do we go from here? And I do think she was scorned. I do think she could have been the real superhero of this film. Okay, so Evan, before we wrap up, we like to discuss how we as artists and people strive to practice our values as anti-capitalists in our lives, even with all its complexities and what it is to be living in this system. So yeah, tell us a bit about how you do that. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that I was thinking of um, about this question as uh, a father, I have two kids. They're, you know, fairly young, kindergarten, third grade. And I think it's, I find myself trying to, especially with my older daughter, explaining ideas of surrounding capitalism, inequality, all of these types of things in a way that, you know, kids can understand. I think they understand more than Maybe some people give them credit for. So I think it's the idea of instilling those values. And I think just the realization that, you know, the idea of overthrowing capitalism or changing our system in my lifetime may not be possible, but perhaps in in their generation's lifetime, you know, they can see that. So I think it's about trying to give them as many tools as they can as they're, you know, young to live those values, you know, and I don't mean, and that also could include just recycling and the idea of climate change was often a topic, you know, in my house and healthcare, like when we see uh, an ambulance and I've had a discussion with her, like, yeah, it could cost you thousand dollars if you don't have health insurance. She's like, that's not fair. Like everyone should have healthcare. I'm like, yes, you're right. You know, I feel like kids understand these things, like the unfairness as they would probably put it more than I think, you know, people of our generation are older. So I feel like that's the the way I think of it. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And glad that your your kids got you because, you know, that's not no, for real. I mean, that's it's not a thing that 
every child has and um especially instilling those like important values and ones that they will hopefully carry with them for the rest of their lives my parents taught me nothing nothing at all <laughs> they were basically like cover your mouth when yeah. you're chewing that's it that's all i got um so evan i know we mentioned it up top but where can our audience find you and left of the projector pod yeah you can find us on uh, any podcast you know spotify uh as well as i think i mentioned or we discussed at the start you know on tiktok so it's left of the projector pod on all of those platforms, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube as well. And uh, you can check out any of those uh, past episodes and check out future ones. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, man. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we will be watching the pro-capitalist psychological thriller, You've Got Mail. Thanks, everyone. See ya.